Hello and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute. Now recorded in socially distanced form from the comfort of our homes to yours, we offer a skeptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. Until the last few weeks, most of the debate about American decline and our future role in the world was largely theoretical. It was a discussion about whether the Trump era implied the end of American hegemony or whether China's rise would lead to a new multipolar world. Um, But our responses to the coronavirus have highlighted that for all of America's vast military might, there's something seriously wrong with our state capacity, our ability to respond effectively to crises. A pessimist might argue that America is losing its predominant place in the world, a trend highlighted by our abysmal response to this crisis. Um, But an optimist might argue that this crisis will sweep away some of the existing blocks in place and allow America's true sources of strength to shine. In either case, the debate about the future of global order and America's place in it has never been more relevant or more real. Joining us today to discuss this is Dan Nexon, an associate professor at Georgetown University. Along with Alex Cooley of Columbia University, Dan is the author of the new released book, Exit from Hegemony, The Unraveling of the American Global Order, which I believe is actually released today. The book explores the decline of the so-called liberal international order, and it suggests that a fundamental transformation is underway in the international system. Dan, thanks so much for joining us on Power Problems. Thank you so much for having me. So I guess my first question is, given the trend for for portmanteaus lately, we've got Brexit, Texit, Megxit, um, why didn't you call the book Amorexit? Well, the fact is that good exit words have two syllables. Uh, Both of those have three. So it doesn't really roll off the tongue. Uh, Maybe that would work, but for various reasons, I don't, as we'll probably wind up discussing, I don't think that really captures what's going on. So I'm kidding, obviously. Um, But I think the theme of your book is similar to some of the ideas we've seen expressed about Brexit. It's the idea of America, perhaps no longer the hegemon, perhaps stepping away or turning our backs on global hegemony. Um, And I guess I think a good question to start with might be, um, in your opinion, is that the case? Are we turning our backs on hegemony? Or is this something we don't really have a choice in? Is it structural factors that are undermining our hegemony in the long run? Well, the fundamental factors that we think are at work are structural. Uh, That is, American global hegemony, except in perhaps some spheres like monetary policy, is pretty much already gone. The question is what happens to the core of what we term the American system, which is a borrowing from the idea that there wasn't a British empire, there was a British system, uh, and what role the U.S. plays in shaping global order moving forward. So I think that we'll, we'll get more into Trump, I'm sure, in a bit, but Trump is certainly, Trump, we don't think that Trump foreign policy makes sense given the various challenges facing the United States right now. But we started writing this book before Trump was president, uh, or at least we started the ideas for the book before Trump was president. And I don't think it makes sense to sort of say it's all Trump and we can just go back to dominating the globe like a colossus if we could just remove him from office. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I think you're, you're probably right. And I think this is a point that, you know, we've made on Power Problems before that a number of our guests have made that the Trump himself is perhaps... Um, more of a a symptom of of what's going on uh, with American politics at the moment rather than a cause of America's changing global role. Um, I mean, is is that something you think is the case? Is 
is Donald Trump representative of something that's happening to us, or is he just accelerating this trend? Well, I think the easy answer, I, I like both answers. And the both answer here is that he is both a symptom and an accelerant. And as I think we'll probably get to when we talk more about the arguments that I make in the book or that we make in the book, uh, he is a symptom insofar as we think that Trumpism represents the American version of a more generalized set of counter-order movements that are primarily right-wing and populist that are contending for power and contending against order in the many of the advanced industrialized democracies. To that extent, he's symptomatic of some of these broader trends. Uh, but he's also a cause because the fundamental things that Trump is doing, while I think they're actually designed to maximize hegemony in a certain sense of the term, uh, are not things that are likely to, uh, are things that are undermining American influence, and they're things that tend to make some of these dynamics uh, that we talk about in the book worse. Dan, before we, we talk about the specific cause or, you know, problems caused by these different challenges, maybe we could back up just a second and talk about how you guys describe and define the American system, liberal international order. Because, you know, frankly, one of the most frustrating things about this topic over the last couple of years has been the difficulty in nailing down exactly what the order is. And one of the things I like about your book is the way you guys have kind of done a better job tackling, you know, sort of specifying what do you mean by this order? Um, because I think without that, we can't really discuss the changes. Sometimes it feels like every time someone sees something they don't like in the world, they go, oh my God, the international order is dying. Um, but, you know, without an objective definition, it's hard to know if they're correct. Well, thanks. I'm glad that we were at least somewhat persuasive. Uh, you know, if you for those of you who read the book and are also are up on the kinds of things that some of the people on this podcast are publishing about liberal order or some of the things that Cato's facilitating about liberal order, we took this debate very seriously and we took criticisms of the idea of the liberal order very seriously when we were writing those sections. Fundamentally, we think that uh, international order is probably a misnomer. There is Although we'll use it as a shorthand, there's just no way around it. There is no no real thing. And I guess there really is nothing like a single international order that ha is smooth and homogenous and without any sort of contradictions. And what you really have are orders in different policy domains, in different regions, in different relationships. And at some level, they do aggregate to some kind of an overarching order. But most of the time, if we spend too much of our effort trying to figure out what exactly the the sort of shape of global order is, we'll be frustrated because it's it's hard to grasp. So we think that international order is probably better thought of conceptually as a process of ordering in which states and other actors are actively trying to shape things like uh, rules, norms, arrangements, uh, the kinds of governance infrastructure that exists or doesn't, or maybe doesn't exist uh, among states and trying to shape one another's policies and domestic policies. Uh, often many states are doing this at once and in a hegemonic order, all that means is that one leading actor has a preponderance of capabilities. And so it is able to engage in, uh, it has outside influence in its ordering, its attempts to, to order international politics, its efforts to, to make and maintain or alter um, alter those rules, norms, arrangements, 
uh, those networks, those ties, those practices that constitute international politics. Uh, maybe, and we also think in particular, and we, we have a variety of analogies we use. We talk about international order having an architecture, which are sort of the rules, norms, and principles, which is, I think, what most people talk about when they talk about liberal order. It's, it's the most commonly talked about thing. You know, and then we also talk about an infrastructure, which are the second half of what I just mentioned, the idea that there is a whole set of relationships, networks, and institutions that both help to reflect the principles of that order, but also help shape it. And those things are kind of the sinews of order. And in particular, what we're interested in is them is the sinews of American hegemony in that infrastructure. Now, if I can go to liberal order for a second, liberal order has been a really thorny proposition. And too often, either you have people who say there is no such thing as a liberal order because look at all this illiberal behavior out there, or you have people who say, well, you know, yeah, there's some variation, but there really is this this fundamental liberal international order that's really kind of benign and nice, and we ought to struggle to maintain it, um, despite some of those kinds of, of problems or, or deviations from it. Uh, and we think that that's, again, a kind of simplification in that it's probably easiest to think about liberal order as something that needs to be disaggregated. So in a crude way, we talk about three different dimensions of liberalism that might be present in any given international order. Uh, the first is what we call political liberalism. Uh, and this is primarily the idea that the best form of governments of states or whatever the dominant political communities are should take uh, a, a, at maximum a, dem a liberal democratic form and at minimum uh, have some, that states regimes have some set of obligations to preserve certain sets of rights or liberties of their citizens, as opposed to, say, a despotic order and in the pre-modern period where there'd be very little sense of any obligation uh, to the citizenship that, uh, or even the idea that people are citizens rather than subjects. Um, secondly, there's economic liberalism, which we think at a minimum is uh, some sort of commitment to, to, to markets and open trade, although you have tremendous variation in the forms of economic liberalism that we see over time and also ideologically. So you have everything from kind of New Deal embedded liberalism with robust social safety nets to more kind of neoliberal uh, ideas that, that most of the world ought to be run according to the markets of the logic of largely self-regulating markets. Uh, and that's shifted over time. Uh, and a lot of debates we have about, you know, probably that I would have with your standard Cato person are about what form of, of economic liberalism should predominate. And then the third element is liberal intergovernmentalism. And this is the idea that uh, at a minimum relations between uh, actors, international politics uh, are based on principles of sovereign equality so that um, the smallest state has uh, the right, has the same kind of rights, the same types of uh, perquisites as the largest states. And at maximum, more traditionally, we think of in terms of multilateral governments, right? And having institutional fora and other kinds of arrangements for making joint decisions and engaging in cooperation where you follow certain kinds of like parliamentary procedures and you have bureaucratization, rule following, and so on and so forth. And one of the points that we make, and I will I will shut up about this in a second, is that these are often and almost probably inevitably in tension with one another. And so that liberalism is liberal orders are are, are even of their own devices are, are bound to mutate and shift as these things come into conflict with one another. Yeah, so, um, no, that's a really great overview. Thanks for, for doing that. Um, so I guess my question is, um, you 
you talk in the book um, about how the, the, the liberal international order, the American system, has been quietly eroding for, and you say, about 15 years. Um, and so, I mean, I guess my, my question is, is it eroding across all of these dimensions? Is it eroding in some more? I mean, just just looking at it, you know, myself as somebody who's not studied this in depth, I'd say probably on political liberalism, we've seen more erosion than in some of the other areas. Um, and I guess also, I'm curious the extent to which you think this is the result of declining American hegemony versus other factors. So I think you're exactly right that whether we talk about specific policy domains, domains where the U.S. does or does not exercise more hegemonic influence, there's a lot of variation. I mentioned at the top that the U.S. is still a monetary hegemon. Uh, dollar hegemony is still very much a thing, even though I think the case, for example, the United States being um, a military hegemon, are, is at least a global military hegemon, is declining, and the ability of the United States uh, to be a kind of global standard setter as a hegemon is also in decline, uh, for example. But I think the issue of liberalism is really important um, because both critics and um, defenders of the concept of liberal order tend to treat it as all or nothing. They're not always, and I'm drawing broad strokes, and there are plenty of people who make similar arguments, but they're not always as attentive as they ought to be to um, ways in which liberal order might be flourishing, even as other elements are disappearing. So yes, exactly right. We think political liberalism is in the most trouble. And it's in the most trouble because a number of rising powers who have the capacity to now promote their own order, and also a number of weaker states who finally have the possibility of exiting from that order, or at least of leveraging competition among potential patrons to influence over, don't really want to be told that they have to engage in anti-corruption activities, don't want to be democratized, because that's a, a threat to the regime, don't want to necessarily concede more rights than they think uh, would be um, desirable in terms of uh, threatening domestic stability. And so where the action is, and just kind of trying to strip out or combat uh, liberal political liberal conditions, whether informal or informal, of uh, various forms of assistance, uh, security guarantees, and so forth, and also trying to combat them and contest them in global fora. Um, ironically, liberal governmentalism is doing really well, and it's doing really well because uh, uh, these states also tend to, I think, view these kinds of multilateral arrangements where they have voice opportunity and a say in where they can assert their sovereign rights as potentially shields against political liberalization, right? So um, it's the old saw about how, you know, you got a bunch of authoritarian states in the United Nations Human, Human, United Nations Human Rights Council, and therefore they can make life difficult for attempts to use the uh, UNHRC uh, to do anything really effective. Well, multilateralism can be a good shield for that. And moreover, multilateralism is just a uh, liberal governance, liberal intergovernmentalism, as we call it, is a pretty effective way to manage a whole set of kinds of relationships. And so uh, you see both in four international fora, and this is where Trump matters because of the way he's tried to render them irrelevant by reducing U.S. presence or U.S. activity, um, you see a fair amount of liberal intergovernmentalism, but now being more used for politically illiberal ends. And then you also, when you look at what China in particular, but also Russia, and even regional actors have done to try to 
engage in counter-ordering maneuvers or try to build alternative orders or to, to have more leverage in contesting order, they've generally set up multilateral organizations. So they've set up things like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization or the New Development Bank or the AIIB. Um, if you look at a lot of the kinds of foreign relationships uh, that China is engaged in with, with Europe or via the BRI, for example, with certain European states or in Latin America, they're often in a multilateral setting. Uh, and so... China has sort of positioned itself as using, so you sort of, in a sense, if you were to extrapolate this and say China were to become a truly global hegemon, the U.S. were to sort of fall off the radar screen as a as a pure competitor of China, I think right now you would expect to see a lot of liberal intergovernmentalism, but with politically illiberal characteristics. And you'd probably see some kind of still commitment to economic liberalism. Trade has benefited a lot of these states a great deal, although it wouldn't be the kind of economic liberalism that we either associate with the Bretton Woods system or that we associate with the um, sort of WTO post-1991 neoliberal order. This sounds um, a lot like some of the the criticisms that we hear these days about how China is, um, in particular, is inside the system that America built and is is using that system, you know, against America. That it's it's turning the institutions that America and the West built during the Cold War um, against us in some way. And I'm I'm not entirely sure I necessarily agree with that criticism. But it sounds a little like that's kind of the argument you're making here, that countries like China or Russia um, may be building some of their own institutions or some of their own system, but they're primarily using what exists already um, to further their own ends. Is that accurate? Well, I think they're doing both. Um, They're both engaged in what we call order contestation within the sort of venerable institutions, the ones that you say were set up by the United States, or at least that story, I think, has been complicated by historians, were set up, many of which after the end of the Second World War, at these large international conferences and agreements, right? Um, But certainly in an era of US, you know, where the US had 45% of world gross domestic product. So it was clearly an overwhelming uh, economic hegemon. Um, and then, uh, and so they're contesting within those institutions uh, where they have voice, in places where they have voice. Um, so the United Nations, for example, but less so in like the IMF or the World Bank, where I think their voice is not as powerful for obvious reasons having to do with voting arrangements. Uh, and they're also engaged in what we call alternative order building, which is rooting around the existing order. And none of these arguments are original. I mean, A, they're all over the news and all over the commentary and the debates, but B, some of these arguments have been articulated by people as early as the the early 2000s. Certainly, the, the you had arguments about you know, China as a rogue donor or um, arguments, uh, the world without the West argument, um, which which first started to identify this kind of ways in which de facto there was a kind of routing around uh, the advanced industrialized democracies in, in trade and other kinds of arrangements. So, I mean, I think that's true, but I think the question is kind of what kind of interests are they protecting? And by and large, I think, um, you know, they're protecting the kinds of things you would expect authoritarian great powers to protect, which is their own regime survival. So China's not, and to some degree, China's not necessarily out there to like take down the liberal order. You know, this idea, you know, I guess the sharp power idea, they're using our own institutions against us. I mean, part of the idea of liberal institutions is that other states get a voice, even if they don't have the same values that, that you do. Uh, so, I mean, in a sense, this is how the system's kind of supposed to work. Um, but, uh, you know, they're trying to basically, you know, they've come to see, and, and I think actually, Emma, you've written a fantastic 
paper about this. You know, they've come to see um, liberal order in the U.S. run liberal order as as a threat to their regime survival, as fomenting uh, color revolutions and the Arab Spring, and as an interference in their ability to maintain uh, political stability. And so they're quite naturally then trying to, you know, what's the phrase, making the world safe for their authoritarian models, which is exactly what the United States was doing in the 40s, trying to make the world safe for its uh, particular political model. And so I guess I don't see it. I mean, I think if you value political liberalism in international politics, yeah, you'd be concerned and you'd want the United States to take efforts to make sure that it continued to use its capacities to counter this and try to shape things differently which doesn't necessarily mean, you know, a cold war. It just means, you know, you have contestation of order. That's natural and it happens. Um, I think that it, it's, it's. I don't see it quite as, um, you know, a sinister new cold war or that all this stuff is necessarily offensive. I think some of it, a great deal of it is best understood as defensive. Dan, I think, you know, the Trump administration's uh, national security strategy kind of said, oh, we're going to pivot back to great power competition. And in many ways, after, you know, 15, 16, 17, whatever years of the war on terror, I think many people in the United States have rediscovered the fact that great power competition is a thing. And I think, I, f- I feel like books like yours are important correctives to people who seem to have forgotten that the United States is not the only player in the world. Um, but so, so to me, a lot of this is, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of the debate or the, the complaining that maybe you hear in political circles is um, basically people wishing that it was the United States still and not China who was exercising sort of newfound power. Um, but I think there's another thing, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I just wanted to draw you out on it a little more um, because you, you sort of, I, I think another great thing about the book is is that the threats aren't just from Russia, China, but there's sort of multi-directional or multi-dimensional threats uh, to the order. And, and one of them, I think, is this notion, and I, I think of the Benjamin Barber kind of framework here, the jihad versus McWorld. Um, it, in some ways, it feels like the liberal international order in the United States embarked on a, an effort of a, a global regime change effort. And, and at some point, you know, when they were all powerful after World War II, that went okay. Uh, had its limits even then. But at the end of the Cold War, a lot of people think, okay, now it's time. It's the end of history. We just put our foot on the gas and finish this off. But oh, oh, it ran into the reality that that's not how the rest of the world wants to go right now. So how how would you, can you rank or, or think about like how important is that sort of dynamic versus the, the China power, the rebalancing of power at that level? Well, I mean, I think our argument, you know, it's funny, I, I sort of, jaw, I, I wound up not answering, I think, the most important part of the earlier question, which is, you know, what's really kind of novel about our argument. And I'm going to actually try to bring these two questions together because I think they do come together. So our, I would never pretend that the arguments we're making are new. Nothing is new under the sun. And uh, But I do think that what we are particularly interested in is this particular um, way in which three different trends have come together right now. One of them being the the emergence of great power challengers who are interested in contesting order and offering alternative visions of order. Um, the Chinese offering an authoritarian capitalist vision, and the Russians offering a culturally conservative uh, vision of international order, uh, among other things. Uh, also, for a variety of reasons, including the kind of defensive character we talked about, but also just, you know, states want maximum room to maneuver. Uh, you have increasing demand for alternatives to Western patronage. Uh, 
uh, into the mechanisms that are used to order, that is the provision of public, private, and club goods. And then third, you have this rise of counter-order movements, and this is the part of our argument which I don't think is unique, but we're but I think is the least paid attention to, which is the historically the role that transnational, uh, transnationally oriented uh, movements that are both about change in domestic politics, but also about change in international order, as a logical relate logical part of that. Um, the role that they play in in these kinds of power transitions, um, you know. So we talk about fa- interwar fascism, interwar Bolshevism. We talk about the way in which a lot of the work on power transitions overlooks. Uh, the important role played by anti-colonial movements in decolonization, and we take this back centuries. But the main reason this is important here is that I think what we think is going on right now, which makes it hard to say which is more important, is we're seeing positive feedback loops between all three of these uh, kinds of, of forces, that they're all um, mutually reinforcing one another in a way that is probably accelerating the hollowing out of order that's been happening, or the hollowing out of U.S. hegemonic order that's been happening for the last last 10 or so, 10, at least 10 years, uh, possibly 15. Um, and there, um, I think the best, and, and so we put a lot of emphasis on, on the rise of right-wing populism and, and what could be the rise of left-wing populism, although primarily the potent force of this has been right-wing, which has rejected, of course, um, certain ideas about global government, certain ideas about, uh, you know, put forth an aggressive defense of sovereignty, uh, has uh, often rejected uh, uh, markets, not just because of sort of this anti, not because they have some necessarily just some latent anti-capitalist measures, but because a lot of the way that these these movements work when they gain power is by essentially creating elaborate clientelistic need networks that favor their, you know, that shovel resources towards their preferred uh, supporters and businesses. And that's how, say, Orban has tried to lock down Hungary. And so marketization and anti-corruption is a threat to their role, to the, their way of doing business. Uh, and so I think that, um, but I think this, the, the place this really kind of, you can see this happening, right, is in uh, the, is in what we've seen recently with the, with the coronavirus in some parts of Europe, like Italy and Serbia, where, uh, the Chinese um, offered some technical assistance and then basically delivered on some contracts, right? Uh, that's about it. Um, and yet there were the populists in the region had an incentive to, and some of the goods turned out were shoddy, but the populists in the region had a real incentive to say, hey, look, Europe's not doing us any favors. Uh, China's helping us out. Uh, this uh, underscores our claim that China's a, a, a better partner, or at least a good partner that we can turn to in defense of our national sovereign interests. And this kind of what we call multipolar populism, this, this way in which uh, populist movements both point towards multipolarity as, as a desirable outcome because it increases their room for maneuver and gets them out of pressure to do things like respect gay rights or, uh, you know, or, or engage in certain kinds of market reforms that they don't want to engage in, uh, is both kind of something that that is an aspiration, but is also something that uh, is is advances an argument for 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 why they will best defend national interests because they will take advantage of the existence of. Uh, other great powers and other suppliers of of goods, and we see this across very ideologically distinctive uh, uh, sort of pot, right, you know, popul- authoritarian populist or right populist or whatever. We see this not only in Europe, but we see we see Erdogan playing the same game, uh, and we see Duterte playing the same game. So I think that there is this barbaresque aspect to it if you think about 
you know, radical Islamic movements as a, another variation of counter-order movements that was much more on our radar screen earlier. Uh, but I think the difference here is that um, you have the potential for both great power encouragement and sponsorship of these counter-order movements, which you, you know, there were certainly regimes that sponsored uh, radical Islamicism, but not, you know, not not to the extent that when the United States got really huffy and started to put pressure on them to to stop funding some of these guys, that a lot of that funding dropped off, for example. But here you have uh, state sponsorship and state encouragement uh, among great power, and it's certainly not among great powers, these were regional actors largely, uh, of great powers. And so it's not just the kind of like, oh, no, there's a rejection of globalization, and look at all these people who are saying globalization is bad. It's that nexus of... Uh, these kinds of movements with great power sponsorship that I think is particularly interesting about today and is is probably quite distinctive, if that makes any sense. You know, honestly, what it sounds a lot like to me is um, the role that the Soviet Union played during sort of the, the very tail end of British hegemony, and particularly the role it played in decolonization, you know, bringing elites from a lot of former colonial powers to Moscow and running classes for them. And, you know, I don't know how much influence that actually ended up having, but it, it certainly was a role that they tried to play um, as we sort of see the, I guess, you know, the, the, the interwar order that eventually turn into this American-led order. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's a very good point because what we, of course, saw in that process was ultimately an intense competition between the United States and the Soviet Union for the loyalty of the quote-unquote new nations. And this helped to prod the United States to get itself to get fully behind decolonization, even though that greatly undermined the power of some of its you know, allies in Europe. Uh, and that kind of competition uh, in which you get, uh, in some ways, you get uh, elites in, 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 in weaker countries uh, find that they have more leverage, that kind of competition is one potential way that this could go. And certainly that's the way we'd expect it to go if there really were a, a new Cold War, as it were. So I think it's a great analogy. There are actually a lot of analogies. Um, you know, you can talk about, you know, this is much more extreme than anything we, we see now, but you can obviously talk about the common turn. Uh, you can talk about some of the, the ways in which fascist movements, particularly when they got control of governments, tried to help one another out, and also the ways in which the fascist movements that did come to power influenced the character and texture of fascist movements elsewhere, right? So the way that the success of the Nazis made them a more attractive model for fascism than other some other forms of fascism that, frankly, were, you know, may not be movements that I find particularly uh, convivial, but were nowhere near as bad as the Nazis, so... So Dan is is past prologue is is the the spheres of influence model from the Cold War something we're heading toward in, inexorably uh, not that I will hold you to the predictions but so we um you know so we 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 think a lot about this and I think about a lot about this and we kind of if you know from reading the book kind of cop out at the end we list a bunch of different scenarios that could happen yeah there's no copy on on a podcast Dan Can bring your oh, hot takes gosh. bring your hot takes the the key thing I will say and I think is that the fact that the United States is has lost global hegemony in most domains just because it has competitors now and it didn't used to have competitors it has what we call a patronage monopoly it it doesn't anymore or it had a cartel with the other the other western powers um that's that's a done deal there's a question about what the shape of the sort of core american system will look like and one of the ways that could go is that the united states uh, could try to make it more one of a sphere of influence, which is something that you see when 
there are conditions of great power competition and great powers try to lock down, essentially establish hierarchy, more hierarchical control over states so that they can't exit, uh, so they can't take advantage of exit options. So that's certainly one possibility. The Russians, I think, would love that kind of a system, and it has a lot to do with the kind of order that they are looking for. Um, but I'm not so sure that the spheres of, influ- spheres of influence have always been with us. I mean, one of the, the things I used to find hilarious was that the United States would say that they reject spheres of influence when they were talking to the Russians about questions like, can the Ukraine, can Ukraine join NATO? But then the United States had a, has, its, has clearly has a sphere of influence in North America, right? So, you know, we were saying uh, we don't like spheres of influence. And what we really kind of meant was that everywhere, everyone should have the right to join our sphere of influence, no matter where they are. Um, so we'll see spheres of influence and we see spheres of influence now. Um, the question, of course, is how much we see a kind of agreement to allow the spheres of influence to function as defensive buffers and protections for the national interest. And there, I think, um, I'm skeptical that we'll see that kind of, you know, sort of idealized 19th century arrangement. Um, just because the United States has core allies, and as much as some people writing at Cato would like, I don't see the United States abandoning Japan anytime soon. That is, retreating from any of its core security commitments. And so the United States is sort of involved right now in all of these regions that would be natural spheres of influence. So I see, I think you'll see attempts, as you already have, to, to create spheres of influence, but they will be in a context, I think, where there will still be a fair amount of uh, global governance arrangements out there. In fact, an increasing complexity of global governments as more and more order building happens. And so you'll have a kind of a situation that we haven't seen before, really, which is a combination of liberal styles of international cooperation at the global level, but with also with combining in ways that I think we haven't seen before with um, some of the kinds of spheres of influence um, that we saw, that we've seen. I mean, obviously, I'm overstating the case. There are traces of this. The Soviet Union was part of the UN system, uh, and so on and so forth. But I don't think you'll see. That kind of hard and fast division between geographical delimitation of of governance orders that you've seen in the past, and in part that's because uh, of processes associated with globalization that I don't think are reversible, and in part because of the interests of countries like China and having uh, extensive international trade networks. I hope you're right about globalization not being reversible. Well, a lot of what we call globalization is reversible, I think, but but not all of it. <laughs> yeah, and and I think just sort of. Chime in there, but I, I think one of the things I, I would, you know, just again, maybe it's the Cato hat, but I, I prefer the notion of building spheres of interest, mutual interest, as opposed to influence. I think, frankly, it may be one of my previous questions hinted at this. I, I think the United States has has caused some of its own problems here in overreaching, in not actually um, observing the norms of sovereignty and many of the norms it proposes to defend very well and actually encouraging counter-order behavior beyond what I think we would have maybe seen otherwise. And I think, you know, to me, an appropriate policy response down the road is to, you know, show the rest of the world who may have doubts about the liberal international order of the American system to show them how good life is when you're part of it. And, and to let that sort of the shining city on the hill kind of a notion be, be the, the sort of the soft power, if you will, that, that you, you, know, you use instead of regime change and Cold War 2.0 and stuff like that, which I think would be tragic and which you know, we haven't quite gotten there. But I, I think, frankly, Trump is, is pointing down that very street, I, I think. 
Well, I think this is an area where, you know, despite whatever differences some of us have, we're all in agreement. The United States of the 1990s and early 2000s convinced itself that this was a not an exceptional or unusual state, but was a position that would last forever if only it had ginormous military budgets and an active, an incredibly active foreign policy. And so the United States did all sorts of things that in retrospect look like uh, hubris and overstretched, not just wars that killed an awful lot of people, but, you know, really kind of attempts to push states around uh, to sort of um, undermine some of the things that might have been attractive about that, that order in a post-Cold War world. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that clearly um, some rebalancing is necessary and it's inevitable. Um, there's an interesting question here, though, which is which I don't think we have really time to talk about, which is how Trumpism fits into all of this, because I think it's often the case that people think about U.S. hegemony. And I think this is kind of what you're alluding to. Right. Uh, so, I mean, one dimension of this, of course, is that Trumpism and its rejection of some of the basic tenets of what we would think of as the the old small L liberal consensus among conservatives and liberals during the post-World War II period, you know, has a vision for domestic U.S. politics, which is one that might not be exemplarist for markets, uh, how, however they are more kind of, uh, you know, Warren-style markets or whether they're more sort of, um, you know, uh, libertarian-style markets, and also not uh, all that great from a perspective of you know, exemplifying civil liberties and political rights protections. But I think internationally, it, this issue I raised in the beginning, it, it, that we have to understand that the Trumpism does not represent an impetus towards a turn inward per se. Trumpism represents an impetus towards a more um, a more hard power and more um, coercive way of doing American hegemony. And that's the whole logic, for example, of of bilateralism. The whole logic of bilateralism is it's much easier to negotiate and get what the heck you want uh, through extortion and, and coercion from a Britain that's not in the European Union than a Britain that is in the European Union. Uh, and so the sort of, I think the whole debate about Trump as an isolationist that some neoconservatives are still trying to argue is incredibly misguided. Uh, Trump's problem, as we see it, is he is eroding a whole set of power resources, many of which are not non-military power resources that are going to be much more important for the U.S. to navigate in the world there it no longer has kind of the unfettered position that it had in the 90s and thought would somehow last forever. I could not agree more with that. Um, unfortunately, I think we're actually out of time. This has been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan. And thank you for having me and for letting me do what every academic likes to do, as you both know, which is talk for a really long time about their own work. Well, if you want to check out the book uh, Exit from Hegemony, you can find it for sale online now. Um, thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman, and to everybody at home for listening. We appreciate your tolerance for poor sound quality. Um, and if you'd like to engage with us online while we all socially distance, you can check out our Twitter handle at Power Problems.